to me, when I think about what makes something a smart process, it's all about data, right? So if you have access to data to make decisions, you can have a better outcome. Traditionally, accessing that data from equipment has been very hard. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? We got a bonus edition for you. This week is all about defining the smart manufacturing mindset. Now, this episode features a series of interviews recorded live at the 2023 Smart Manufacturing Experience in Greenville, South Carolina. This event was hosted by SESME and SME at this year's South Tech Conference. That's a lot of names and acronyms all at once, so I'll break it down. SESME is the Clean Energy Smart Manufacturing Innovation Institute that's part of the U.S. Department of Energy. We actually had their CEO, John Dyke, on the podcast earlier this year, and SME is the Society of Manufacturing Engineers, a nonprofit dedicated to the advancement of manufacturing. And the purpose of the Smart Manufacturing Experience is to enable, educate, and inspire manufacturers around emerging technologies, upskilling the workforce, and the promises of smart manufacturing. Since this episode is about defining the smart manufacturing mindset, and we're going to hear seven perspectives on what this is in today's episode alone, I'm going to give you a base definition of what smart manufacturing is before our guests share their own thoughts and expand on this idea. Smart manufacturing is defined as the information-driven, event-driven, efficient, and collaborative orchestration of business, physical, and digital processes within plants, factories, and across the entire value chain. You know, I could share what I feel this means in my own words because I'll admit that was a pretty meaty definition. And hey, on Manufacturing Happy Hour, we want to simplify what these things mean, but I don't want to spoil the surprises and content to come. So between further defining smart manufacturing to defining what the smart manufacturing mindset is all about, here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, this episode features a lot more end users over the course of these next two episodes. That's right, this is coming at you as a two-part bonus edition. You're going to hear from folks from ExxonMobil, PepsiCo, Pfizer, Stanley Black & Decker, people that are currently serving or have served in roles where they were responsible for driving transformative change in their organizations. Our first two interviews in this episode, I'd say, are very much from an end-user perspective, and I'll also let you know that these two are quite a bit longer. That said, the second thing you can expect are shorter segments and insights as we get later into the episode. We'll also hear from folks that are enabling companies to achieve smart manufacturing. This includes discussions around standards, protocols, data models, AI, and more. Finally, you should walk away from this episode with a better understanding of what it takes to achieve the promises of smart manufacturing, both from a technology and leadership standpoint. I'm sure you've realized this already, but this episode contains a lot of information. So if you want to learn more, go check out the show notes page by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23. That's smartmfg23. 
And with that, it's time for our first interview. Our first guest is Sudi Bangalore, founding partner and CEO at Fullbore, a startup dedicated exclusively to bringing the power of digital to mid-market manufacturing businesses. As we explore smart manufacturing mindset, I can't think of a better way to start this series of interviews. Sudi has a lot of experience to share from his time leading Stanley Black & Decker's transformation as their CTO of Global Operations. So whether you're a large enterprise or a small manufacturer, Sudi has more than a few specific pieces of advice because he's experienced both sides. Let's jump on in. Sudi, great to have you here A Manufacturing Happy Hour. We're here at South Tech here at the Smart Manufacturing Experience with Sesme. First question, I'm asking everyone this question because I think it's a good baseline to start, is what is your definition of smart manufacturing? And maybe more importantly, how do you describe a smart manufacturing mindset? Chris, first, thank you for having me. And I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk about my passion about this whole topic of smart manufacturing. So, very apt question. Smart manufacturing to me is about really bringing two, three things together actually. One is connectedness between different functions of manufacturing within the factory and outside. And then the next important component of that is obviously intelligence through data and other analytics and so on, which has become common stream. And the third very critical component is pe or people, right? You got to bring people together. So if you can actually bring these three components together, and actually innovate in terms of how you improve your processes or your response time, et cetera, everything to do with your customer and the people in your operations. That to me is smart manufacturing. That really is how I have viewed it. And of course, if you now dissect between the lines, it's about innovation. It's always about innovation. And in this case, it happens to be process innovation to the, with the whole purpose of driving excellence. And good things happen when you do that. So a few of the things I heard, you mentioned connectivity both inside and outside the factory. I know we're going to be talking about that a lot today. Talk about data, and then you highlight people as well, which are three things I often hear in connection with digital transformation also. Yeah. And I feel like some people use these terms interchangeably, digital transformation, smart manufacturing. So is smart manufacturing different than digital transformation, and if so, how? Uh, I don't know if it is different. To me, I actually think of smart manufacturing as a mindset. Okay. And digital manufacturing is an endeavor. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge uh, task for the most part because you need to change people's minds. And then you have to invest and so on and so forth that comes with digital transformation. To me, I think having a smart manufacturing mindset is one of the components of digital transformation. There are others, right? But that's how I see it. And then the other thing is tip, smart manufacturing can also be more pointed. It can last maybe just a week or two weeks or two months, whereas digital transformation tends to be a lot longer, at least in years, right? At least a year or two. So maybe if, if I'm hearing it right, you define smart manufacturing as more of a mindset and yeah. then digital transformation is a subset of that or the activity that takes place when you're in That's that right. mindset. Okay, I like, I like that. I like that style. Now, I have a question for you because before you were doing full bore, you yeah. were with Stanley Black and Decker. Right. You were leading their transformation. You were leading smart manufacturing there. How did you build the vision for Stanley Black and Decker's digital transformation? See, in the, in the case of Stanley Black and Decker, um, 
like most transformation, it was completely appending uh, what the company did in terms of product innovation and then uh, operations, and that's where I came in in my role as, as a leader for that whole in, in, you know, initiative. And, and third thing, of course, was how, how they actually engaged in the market, more on the marketing and, and so on, uh, and business models. Mm -hmm. So that's how Stanley Black, uh, Black & Decker approached it. And so to that end, it was a lot more than this digital transformation. Yeah. And so it was, it was a lot larger and it in, you know, in, included many uh, facets, uh, as I just described. So from that perspective, it was a lot more comprehensive, a lot more challenging, but also equally extremely exciting yeah. uh, because of the kind of things that uh, Stanley Black & Decker really uh, took on as challenges and helped make some of those very successful benchmark for the industry. So that's how I see uh, Stanley Black & Decker's transformation as compared to others that I was part of before I joined SBD. Uh, as the head of smart manufacturing at Wipro, I started the group at Wipro. Mm -hmm. I actually engaged with a lot of other companies, big uh, big brands like Philips, Corning, and, and British Tobacco, and, uh, and uh, TE Connectivity, and on and on. Uh, so in those those instances, it was a lot more, lot more uh, focused around some aspects of transformations, as compared to what I described about Stanley Black and Decker. Yeah, what stuck out right at the start of the answer. I didn't even need to write it down for this one, but you said you upended yeah. operations, which is pretty dramatic, right? It is a disruptive thing that yeah. you do to the day to day when you're trying to transform, when right. you are transforming. So the follow up I have is. If you had to name one, two, or three like must-dos that allowed your transformation to be successful, what would those best practices be that you'd want to share for the manufacturing leaders that are listening out there today? So obviously, like anything else, whether it is something as small as trying to convince your family to do something different, you need to have a compelling reason why you're going to change yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You can call it you can use fancy words like vision and aspiration and all of that, but you really need to know why and be convinced as the leader of the transformation, why you're going to embark on this huge endeavor, right? And to do that, you have to not only have a wonderful idea and clarity in terms of what your vision is, but also be communicating, you know, be able to communicate effectively. And by that I mean, especially in operations, you need to be able to communicate to the plant floor folks, which is very different than talking to senior management or engineers and so on. So you need to be very cognizant of that. And, and the second thing that I think every transformation should have is you've got to have a, a dual speed mode, okay, where you need to be able to deliver some quick wins while you're working on long-term you know, breakthrough innovation type projects, which is exactly what we did at Stanley Black & Decker, is to really engage on those two toggle between the short term, put some wins. Three months to me is, is the maximum, right? Okay. In three months, you got to deliver something that people can touch and feel. And third, uh, I think you need to be able to be hands-on as a leader. You cannot be uh, sitting in an office having your team do uh, to all of the work. So to me, these would be the three critical components yeah. uh, of, of transformation. Once, of course, you get things going, and once you got some momentum, then you tweak back, right? Uh, but the dual speed mode, 
uh, amazing, compelling vision. And one last thing, you asked only three, and I'll ask you, give you a fourth one, is you've got to have plant champions, right? Uh, to the point I was making, you need to bring some folks who have listened to your vision and engaged on it and are very compelling in terms of convincing others and getting them to you know, join the uh, transformation, you need plant champions. So we use that very successfully in SPD and other companies that I've actually led transformations. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible list. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight the first two because I'd love to get specific on the first two because I think what you said is very important around you need a compelling reason for the transformation. When I hear that, that, that means something you want to achieve over the course of multiple years. That's right. You also said the dual speed mode because you want some quick wins, something that you can show, hey, it's only been three months, but here's some little wins. So can you give me an example of a compelling reason for a digital transformation as well as what a quick win might look like, just so we've got something a little more tangible for the audience? So one of the compelling reasons to me goes back, let's start with people, right? Yeah. Especially where we are in, in the in the globe, especially in the US. Um, talent is hard to come by, people are hard to come by. So to me, one of the most, the first compelling reason is, how do you actually create new pathways and new opportunities for your factory floor workers? Start with that, right? And so there's so many things you can do with all the technologies we're seeing right here at the show that you can really create new pathways for the people. And when you do that, beautiful thing hap things happen in terms of margin, you know, fill rate, and all those good business requirements. Let's start with people. So to me, you do that, then wonderful things happen because you're now trying to see somebody who's got a high school degree or less to see how can I actually, somebody who's been at it for about eight, 10 years, now it's suddenly to say with this transformation using technology and others that he or she can actually become an inspector or a supervisor and so on and so forth, right? So I think that is, that's so exciting to me. And it's something that people talk about, but it's never the first thing that becomes part of the transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's a great answer because you focus on the people and then the business results that would come from doubling down on the folks on the plant floor. Yeah. So what's that quick win then? What's an example of a quick win that like, hey, I'm going through this transformation, but I want to see something happen yeah, in three months. I'll tell you, it, 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 it's, it's, I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the things that happened that when I was doing these, um, along with my team at Stanley Black & Decker, this was about four years ago, and that's where Cobot started to really come, come together uh, in its potential and its value. So the first quick win or, or a short-term win kind of project that we engaged on is, how do you actually put Cobalt in three months or less, working with you know, uh, several companies, both big and small, Panic and uh, Ready Robotics and Rockwell and all of those you know, big OEMs. What we did was we actually then started helping uh, take the dull, dirty, and dangerous operations out of the operations, right? Mm. So that really is the first thing that we did. And when we did that, suddenly the person who was really, for example, in CNC tech, was so now consumed tending to machines and tending to the, the grime of actually operations, suddenly started managing three or four cobots. And he started doing more of the work that he was really passionate about, which is to create some amazing, you know, better CNC programs. So this, to me, was a great example. And so we started with that, and it really yielded results because, again, has a people aspect to it, and you know, quick turnaround, return on investment of maybe six months to nine months, phenomenal. 
and, and great results that you can touch and feel. So you satisfied all of those components. Yeah. yeah, excellent answer. Taking technology to make something safer, and then it's a very tangible thing. A cobot is something you can see out there, you can yeah. see it moving. It's not necessarily, let's say, some of the data that's going to create a lot of impact down the line, but maybe not as visible and tangible as a cobot is. I love the examples you're sharing. One thing I want to do before we wrap up is, is scale this down a bit, because when I think of Stanley Black & Decker, I think of a big company. So that's how a big company transforms. Yeah. What advice do you have for mid-sized manufacturers or smaller manufacturers that need to transform? Thank you again for the segue, which happens to be a passionate topic of mine in what we're doing at Full Bore along with CCAC and, and others in Connecticut, is now how do you actually take, uh, take all of the progress that I've, you know, that's happening in the industry and what I've seen in terms of innovation and how you use you know, dollars and make it more effective to, to change businesses, um, I think to answer your question for small to medium business, you don't have to uh, really uh, focus on, let me, let me step back a little bit. Just because you're smaller doesn't necessarily mean that your aspiration needs to be smaller. It's just that you have to be smarter in terms of where you start, right? You see what I'm saying? Like that. So you got to be smarter in terms of where you start and then really move the needles uh, in terms of then saying, hey, can I actually make this work for me? So on that note, one of the things, again, based on the experience that I've had for 10, 12 years doing transformation for big companies, the first thing that we're doing is what's called as digital jumpstart, right? So which essentially means that, in, again, going back to three months or less, okay, we, can we actually show results of seven to 12% productivity, right? Which is sort of the magical number, if you will. And so now what happens is most business owners, they're still, they love technology, they're you know, eager to know more, but they're skeptical equally, right? So now when you say, hey, here's how I can show something in a very short amount of time and you really see an impact in dollars and, and, and customer growth, because that's another thing that SMEs have, is they want to grow the business. They're so stuck in making operations work, they have very little time to, little time to grow the business. So if you can address that, again, going back to the smarter aspect of it, and doing something meaningful in a short amount of time, again, touching people, then I think they will find the money, because that's what this whole thing is all about, is how can you actually get an ROI that is tangible. And we can, we can do that because of all of these amazing things that's happening on this floor and, and others. Yeah, I like that term, digital jumpstart, and being able to show like a meaningful percentage increase in productivity or one of the, let's say, the, the compelling reasons for doing a transformation, as right. you said. And when you do that, that's one of the critical needs for the country right now, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, obviously, I'm part of the whole smart manufacturing initiative and SESME and, 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 and passion that SESME has. Mm -hmm. So the whole country, if you look at productivity per person, for the first time in many decades, not only has it flattened out, it is dipping. In fact, three months back, I saw a couple of articles in the journal that talks to that. So when you do that, when you have small to medium companies that make up 99% or 97.9%, sorry, of manufacturing, if you now start having them lift productivity, beautiful things happen for the whole country, right? So I think it starts with productivity. 
Well, Sudi, I know this was only a, a just over 15 minute conversation, but a ton of advice for the leaders out there, big and small, working on their smart manufacturing initiatives. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, how are we feeling so far? We are one interview in, but man, Sudi packed a lot into that conversation. Lots of specific examples, talked about digital transformation for both small and large companies. As always, if you want to recap some of those big points, make sure you're visiting the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23. Next up, we've got Mike Tomasco, Vice President of Pfizer Digital. We're going to hear about Pfizer's smart manufacturing journey so far, including some hiccups, along with some good focus on the people that have been involved in this. I'm excited to have you on here because you have the experience. You have, as you say, the battle scars around smart manufacturing. So before we get to those, I want to ask you, what is your definition of smart manufacturing and how would you define the smart manufacturing mindset? Yeah, smart manufacturing is interesting, right? Because manufacturing has always been smart, let's say. It's a complicated endeavor. And in the biopharma industry, it's really complicated. Most products aren't even made in a single facility. So to me, when I think about what makes something a smart process, it's all about data, right? So if you have access to data to make decisions, you can have a better outcome. Traditionally, accessing that data from equipment has been very hard. Technology's changed a lot to make that a lot easier these days. And even throughout our transformation journey, which started in around 2016, the technology's changed so much, it's actually getting a lot easier to mm -hmm. accomplish. So that's one thing, access to that data and information. But the real thing is the insights you can get. What decisions can I make from that data? If I'm not thinking about what I'm trying to accomplish, what outcome am I trying to drive from that data, what's the point? Right? So smart manufacturing is all about bringing more data to the table, using analytics to help you drive a decision, and then doing something about it, actually taking an action to change your outcome. Clear-cut definition. I want to get more specific with what you're doing at Pfizer, because I want to get this right. You're responsible for Pfizer Global Supplies Digital Transformation, an end-to-end -end digitization across manufacturing and supply operations. So, can you describe what makes this a true transformation rather than say, you know, a other typical capital project or a big project? It's a great question. I, I would say when we started, we started just with a strategy. So the strategy being, let's try to change the game for how manufacturing is done for Pfizer and, and the supply chain. Now, as we looked at that and we tried to attempt to do that, I was a team of one creating a strategy, right? The teams that were responsible for executing that strategy weren't necessarily aligned and bought into that. So we had an idea. What if we set up that, that, that special team that was focused on transformation, working across all the functional groups, mm. and then tried to drive it out and had responsibility for driving it out? Then slowly and surely over the years, as we tried a couple different things, it became evident that, oh, we should all be working in the same fashion. So when we, we came together and looked at it holistically, we, we used to be in the, the silos, mm -hmm. so a manufacturing silo, an engineering silo, quality for uh, labs or quality for quality assurance. And that gets you so far, that's table stakes. You can put in core enterprise systems that, that create your foundation for, for your processes. But what it doesn't do is connect those things together. So we start to look at it holistically and say, end to end, how does the flow go? How does our material flow through a plant? 
how can we take a bottleneck here, fix the one issue, and then think about the 15 downstream new issues we caused because we fixed the flow issue. So it's something you have to constantly think about, about the flow of material through the plant and the supply chain to then ultimately reach your outcome. So I want to ask you about the team and breaking down those silos, because I think that's an important point. So you mentioned quality, you mentioned engineering. How did you form a team that made sure you weren't going to run into one department blocking progress, if you will? Well, it's funny you say that, right? Because it's not magic. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't always work. Like, so I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, we just magically came up with a structure that worked. It's, sure. con it's constant evolution. So if I have a manufacturing 4.0 team and I have multiple quality teams, one on labs, one on quality assurance, an engineering team, they're all focused on that functional silo and they're doing really good work there. One of the things we did is we, we changed our entire IT methodology to agile, but we didn't just uh, do well at that at first. We had some issues with doing things and, and accomplishing our goals. It was great for three months and then productivity went down. We found the scaled agile framework that helped us think about how do we structure from strategy down what needs to happen and from the teams up how they execute. And it's been a transformation over time. So this, we're seven years into a transformation. We're still iterating at the top part of that pyramid. How do we fix the strategy down part? How do we align the demand to what's going on? So when we think about working in silos, I had a team, or I should say two teams that created the same or similar application once. So they were both working on a quality uh, analytic capability, mm -hmm. one from an engineering perspective, one from a quality perspective. Yeah. These are both my teams and they weren't talking to each other. Mm. We okay. created the same thing twice. Yeah. Uh, that's always bad, right? So that was a call to action thing. How could we do this differently? How do we change our demand management to bring these things together so we have these discussions? Now, we're, we're getting there, we're not quite there 100%, but it's a constant evolution. You have to think about this. How do I bring these groups together? How do we make this change happen and then execute it? So it's, it's, it's getting there, I should say. So how did you create a clear vision and strategy for your transformation to make sure that you were always focused on a North Star rather than getting distracted by little things here and little things there that, that could be improved? I would say we got lucky in a sense. Okay. Um, I'm part of a group called Bioforum, which is a group of executives like myself and, and my team members that come together in the biopharma industry to work on non-competitive stuff. In 2016, right when Pfizer was forming its digital transformation strategy, Bioforum was coming together for the first time with an IT group. So outside of the engineering world, the IT group's coming together. And the first thing we decided to do is create something called the digital plant maturity model. Okay. Took about a year to get that first draft done, but it's what does good look like on a paper process, on a, on a silo type process, on a connected, predictive, and adaptive style process. And the adaptive stuff was things that we can't even do in our industry because of regulations and things. It's something to strive towards. Mm -hmm. That's the North Star. If we can move up that maturity curve, it, we look at every single, all the hundreds of processes in biopharma manufacturing, we know what good looks like. It's documented. You can go download it off the Bioform website. I've actually uh, had other industry groups come and say, can we use that? I mean, they have to adapt it for their industry, but yes, it makes sense, right? Yeah. So that North Star is something that we use as our strategy in communication internally. We're trying to get 
the majority of our plants up to an average of a level four. So that's a predictive level. So okay. we're past the silo, we have data connected, and we're do, starting to do things analytically and horizontally across the end-to-end -end process to predict outcomes. We'll have some things at a level five. It's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Each process can be a little bit different, but it's really making a big difference for us in, in how we communicate and how we get investment for those projects. So since we're about halfway through, I want to recap what I feel are a couple big points that I've heard. You moved from the silos to really looking at how does product flow through the facility, and that's one of the things that allowed you to connect these other departments and start doing what sounds like a true transformation rather than something that helps quality here, something that helps engineering here. What I feel like I heard you say was around that you were using models that already existed. You weren't reinventing the wheel to make this happen because you had the digital plant maturity model. Is that correct? You were already using established even, best practices? Even better, we helped create it, Yeah. right? So yeah. we had some credibility with our own company because we could point to an external model that we participated in creating. Yes. I find that oftentimes, especially on our um, business side of the equation, we're looking for external answers. We're looking yeah. for a consultant to, to show us the way. Mm -hmm. I can say in digital transformation over the last seven years, every consultancy that's come in and has looked at our strategies tried to poke holes in it. Yeah. There's no holes yeah. because it's pretty straightforward what we're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. and we're executing against it. Mostly what they'll say is, can you do that faster? Mm -hmm. Yes, we can with the right yeah. investment, right? We can always do it faster. You have focus, you can invest, you can drive things out. But where I was going with that was now that best practice exists and it's yeah. out there, you helped create it, but now another manufacturer doesn't necessarily need to go out and recreate the wheel. That's correct. What you said, they have to tweak it for their specific operation. So it's not necessarily a drop-in solution, but it is something they can leverage to make, make their transformation easier. That's correct, yep. So my next question is, one of the things that you said was key to your success was that you kept user experience design at the center. What do you mean by that? Uh, that's a great question. So I have a team of let's, user experience design people, right? And they have a different skill set. They think differently than an engineer does, right? A lot of the manufacturing systems that we have, the ones that come from the, the suppliers, the user interface on those is just slightly better than a green screen, right? Okay. It's not the best experience. Yeah. So when we're trying to solve a problem, we don't start with what system do we want to put in. We start with what's the problem? What are you really trying to do? Like what is this work practice that's not working efficiently? We'll go do some research, we'll do focus groups. We'll go study how they work on the shop floor or in the lab. And the shop floor, this is great, I have about 100 systems we look after on the shop floor. They use about 20 on a daily basis. You hear every single time, why does this one not talk to that one? Why do I have to log into multiple systems to do my job? So if you start to think about what that experience could be, could I build an abstraction layer on top of all these things to make it easier for someone to do their job? The, the change management on the shop floor is simple, mm -hmm. right? They want that. That's what they're, they're striving for, something to make their lives easier. It's up to us to figure out how to make that come to life. And that's where the design team comes in to facilitate all that research, do the designs, and then as we iterate through the agile processes, it's kind of a constant evolution forever. I call it a forever endeavor, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's we, and I, the forever endeavor, I think, is a great way to describe it because this isn't a capital project. This is a digital journey that you're on, you're constantly iterating, you're constantly improving, and that's what I think is one of the most interesting and one of the most challenging parts about it. This isn't something that gets finished, but you're setting up 
processes that allow you to continue to improve over time. And we're working with a stakeholder group that's used to big capital projects yes. that have a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. And when you switch into this mindset of agile and digital, there is no end unless want, they want an end to happen. So when you want to stop investing, it will end. Mm -hmm. And if you want to reinvest, we can start back up. It's all um, capacity driven. So it's, uh, it's up to them to decide when it's over. I have a specific question I want to ask because it's come up a couple times when I've talked about digital transformation before. You talk about, hey, the IT team moved to agile. Yeah. And since this is manufacturing happy hour, we discuss these topics as if we're having a, a drink at the bar with one another. So how do you explain for a manufacturer that's trying to get out of their own way and trying to make, let's say, the IT department able to work as part of a seamless part of their digital transformation? What does it mean for an IT department to go to Agile? I know some people are probably very familiar with this already, but for the, for the group out there that if this could be a key thing, they could like clear their path for moving forward, how would you describe it? In one word, transformational for how we operate. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until we tried to do it that we realized how powerful it could be. Because it's a whole new set of methodologies. And in our industry, highly regulated, you follow waterfall approaches. You design something, you sign off on it. You test something, you sign off on it. I had a system with 5,000 pages of test scripts once that all signed off on. We went live. It didn't do what the user needed it to do. We had to start all that. Like that that's a crazy thing. So as you go through this agile transformation and this concept of iterations, you still need structure though. It's not a free for all. That's where people fail with agile. Mm -hmm. That's how we started. The first three months, we thought oh, it was okay. great. All right. And then we slid into this productivity of things weren't, they were just kept pushing out through iterations. Yeah. With the scaled stuff, you get that structure that you need and the guidepost to say, no, this we're doing something in this, this uh, 12 week period, beginning, middle and end, then we're gonna evaluate it. We're gonna improve and do it again and keep doing that planning. Um, what's interesting is uh, how do you incorporate beyond IT? Because IT is just, it depends on your company, right? So like, I don't like, I don't think of myself as an IT person. I have a consulting background. I've tried to build a consulting company inside my IT group, right? Understand the process, understand what outcomes we're trying to drive. What's the value? Mm -hmm. The tech stuff comes, right? And we have the, the people and the partners for that. But it's that empathy that you need to have with your business partner. And then the real big, the, the special sauce, how do you get your business partners on those agile teams? If we're talking about manufacturing, how do you convince the operational technology group that this just isn't a fad, this is something that we can do together to really make a difference? That's been our uh, biggest long-term uh, evolutionary struggle, let's say, sure. is to build that tight partnership. And we're doing a decent job. In the beginning, it was terrible. Like we were two different groups and we didn't want to work well together because I think on the IT side, you have to have some humility. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You don't know everything. You don't know what a shop floor team is going through on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side, the flip side, on the OT side, the number one question we get all the time is, what happens if the system goes down? Yeah. And my answer is always like, do you think I want the system to go down? Yeah. You know, on the yeah. show, like, never, no, of course not. So like, we're in this together, we're one company, and we can make great things happen together. So we talked about this earlier, and we kind of just referenced it again in that last question. I want to double down on this, though, for the people that are trying to put their teams together and break down their silos. What advice do you have for the manufacturing leaders out there that are listening to make that happen? and to get the right team in place? I think it's all about just trying stuff. Okay. Um, 
you've got to be willing to go out there and try. Mm -hmm. um, I would focus less on ROI. I get this all the time. What's the ROI? What's the ROI? You can estimate any ROI you want for any project. I've been doing this for close to 30 years. I can show you a number that makes you happy, doesn't make you happy. Mm -hmm. It's all based upon estimates and conjecture, yeah. right? You at some point, you have to just trust that having more data to drive a process and help me make decisions with advanced analytics is going to create value. Mm -hmm. If you believe in that, it's a belief. Yeah. If you believe in that, you can make it happen. If you don't believe in it, it might take you two years to get a business case approved. Yes. Technology's changed five times in two years, and it's a waste of time. So it's all about doing it, and then when it doesn't work, try something else. Yeah. Iterate, change, it's not a big deal. Fail fast, that old mantra. And who are a couple of the key stakeholders, I should say a few of the key stakeholders that need to be involved in this journey? We've talked about IT quite a bit, We've quality's been mentioned, engineering's been mentioned. I just want to make sure yeah, we're I thinking mean, of some of the other right groups. For, for me, it starts at the top. So okay. our president of manufacturing is amazing, mm -hmm. and he really is a believer that yeah. having information, data, and digital technologies is going to change how they operate, how much efficiency they can gain, how much yield you can get out of a process with the same inputs. That's a huge winner. So with a manufacturing intelligence program, if you have input A and you can get 2x yield on the process, that's real money, right? That's your ROI, but you have to believe that's gonna happen. You can estimate, sure, it's gonna create X millions of dollars, yeah. but it still comes down to a belief. On the floor level or the lab level, you have to paint that picture of what does, what, what's it gonna look like? How's yeah. my life gonna be better? They yeah. get it right away. Yeah. Oh, my life's gonna be better. Where you have issues is mid-management. Oh, All the time okay. in, in, in a manufacturing plant. And I, I do have empathy for them, right? We're not enemies, we're, we're on, in this together. But on a daily basis, they have to produce product of high quality and get it out the door because there's a lot of demand for these things. Anytime we come in, we're here to help, right? right. You, you run into that, um, you're here to help. That's going to be a long-term help. But today, it's disruptive. Yeah. So that's um, a balance of the message that we have to help mid-management come through so that they understand on the other side, you're going to have a little bit of a dip, but you're going to come out much, much stronger. I once heard an executive describe it as you got to have it, it's got to be driven from the top. Someone up top needs to believe it, but it's got to be embraced by everyone. Yes. And I feel like that often, like we go straight to the plant floor, right? We got to show the folks on the floor that it's going to make their life easier. But I think you just made an incredible point that, hey, where it can be most disruptive is that middle management level that at the end of the day, they got to get stuff out the door every day. So it might be most disruptive for them, even when they're you know, trying to be a good corporate citizen. They're like, yes, I know this is going to help in the long run, but you're screwing up my performance review six months from now as well. So Absolutely. I, I get it. No, that's a great way to describe it. Last question, and this is kind of a fun one to end on. You said that manufacturers need to have the right attitude, specifically like a willingness to try new things and be okay with failing when they're transforming. So can you wrap us up with a story of something that you tried that didn't go as planned and what you learned from it? Sure, Chris. I have quite a few of those stories, but I'm going to go with the big failure because um, okay. it's the one that hurt the most and, yeah. and we learned the most from. Early on in our transformation, we didn't have a cloud-based data lake. And part of our yeah. vision and transformation is like, put all the data in the cloud and we can do amazing things with it. Mm -hmm. Well, our approach to that maybe wasn't the best, um, both internally and with some external partners, 
we decided to put all of our enterprise system data in the cloud, manufacturing quality, ERP, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. When it went to go live, the nightly refresh rate was 48 hours. So you not, enough, imagine, not enough time in the night. Yeah, I hear you. You can imagine you. that that wasn't well received by anyone. And yeah. I think when you look back on it, we, we had the belief that it was the right idea, but we didn't have the execution. We didn't have the right team members with the right skills. We were trying to reskill people to do something that they weren't familiar with. Mm -hmm. So the way we fixed that was is we found people internally and externally that had that skill set that had done this before, mm -hmm. and then we redid it. So we lost a lot of time and a, a bit of money, and re really that time is, is, is worse than the money um, because you're then a year, like about a year behind where you thought you would be. Yeah. We've since fixed all that, it's, it's great now, but the, the lesson there was fail sooner. We were hoping, you can't manage by hope, right? Yeah. We were hoping we'd be able to fix all the issues and we just, we, we didn't. I heard a couple things there. One, you were very spe specific about this part, fail quickly, don't do something that's gonna take a year off the project. Yeah. But the other thing I heard was that you also brought in people that had experience in this area that could then fix the challenge that you were having. Which I gotta think in this day and age, there are now even more people out there that people can be looking for that have the experience to help them in their transformation efforts, whether it's recovering from a mistake or just doing things right the first time. As well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other key on that one is don't put all your data in the cloud for no reason, yeah. right? I think a lot of people have learned that lesson Start with a use case. Start okay. with one thing. Make sure your technology stack works. Then expand from there. We took three data sets when we redid yeah. this from ERP and our quality and lab systems. Mm -hmm. We reused those 15 times for different applications. So we were creating, then we were creating value much faster and then building out the rest of the, system, the data lake. I got you. So prioritize where there can be repeatability and scalability. Yes. Awesome. Well, Mike, I know we, we went long, but I had to get all as much knowledge as I could from you on this because you've been there, done that, and more manufacturers need to hear from folks like you. So thank you so much for Thanks, jumping Chris. on the show today. All right. Cheers. So Mike's definition of smart manufacturing focused on one of the themes Sudi touched on, which is leveraging data to make decisions and take action. I thought it was important that he highlighted that we've been doing this for a long time, you know, making decisions based on the data we have. But now, it's more possible to pull data from various sources and bring it all together. Mike also said something that reinforced and expanded upon one of my earliest lessons of digital transformation, that it needs to be driven from the top and embraced on the plant floor. But what I started thinking about differently following this conversation is that transformation can be most disruptive to middle management, particularly ones that have day-to-day -day production goals. Anyway, I hope this was helpful. Hearing these examples from end users that really have that smart manufacturing mindset and are out there leading their digital transformations. Our next guest is Patrick Gaughan, partner at Axiom Manufacturing Systems. This conversation is a bit shorter, so let's ask the first question and jump right in. Patrick, the first question I have for you is a question that I'm bringing up with everyone. All right. So that question is, what is your definition of smart manufacturing? And how would you describe a smart manufacturing mindset, having a smart manufacturing mindset? That's a good question. And I think my perspective maybe is a little bit different than some of your other guests. I come from a lean manufacturing background, right? And lean kind of took precedent back in the 90s. At least that's when I started doing it. And so 
Uh, to me, lean and smart are synonymous. The difference really is that one deals from a, a data perspective much more so than just process observation. And it ensures that you actually have the ability to have supporting data to be able to do what you want. And that's not just machine data. We talk a lot about having machine data, right? And, and that's a big part of what this renaissance is to moving into smart manufacturing. But in truth, there's a lot of supporting business data that needs to be married with the machine data to really make good use of it. And at the same time, you have to have the ability to contextualize that data to really get the maximal value out of it. So when we talk about what does it mean to have a smart manufacturing mindset, I think it's about smashing through the paradigm of saying, let's just react to the loudest voice in the room and do what they think is the right thing. It's about taking the time and the effort to go out and get the data, synthesize the data, look at it, and make decisions solely based on what the data tells you. And as long as you're willing to do that, you can call it whatever you want, whether it's smart manufacturing, lean manufacturing, what have you, but you will organizationally make the best decisions for the business as a result of having done that. Part of the beauty of where we're at today is that there's a lot more tools and systems in place to be able to do the smart manufacturing, much more so than when I first started in, in an organization so long ago. There's a lot better tool sets to be able to accomplish that. So, you know, I would encourage any of your listeners out there when you think about it, don't get too hung up on what is smart and how does it work and how do I plan it. Just realize that what we're talking about is running the business optimally, using data to be able to make informed decisions. Do most organizations have the ability to go out there and get that data today and do what the data tells them? I'm thinking about this from the perspective of small, large manufacturers. Because I, I understand what you're saying. It could be easy for an executive to say, hey, this is what I think we need to do but I want to know what's the actionable best practice to make sure they don't go down that path, but go the path of the data instead. Yeah, that's, it, that's really important. And when, when you think about how do you start any journey, you always start from the most informed decision that, that you can possibly do, right? So a singular voice in the wilderness isn't really going to ever get you where you need to be, right? So the first thing is to have an agreement across the organization that we're going to do everything based on having that data. But to your specific question, do people actually have the data to be able to do that? And the answer to that, at least here in the United States, quite often is no. They, they ha we haven't taken the time to retool and put things in place from a manufacturing perspective to be able to have the data that's necessary to really drive excellence. And so what you'll see here at the show today and you'll, you'll hear about probably in perpetuity is the fact that there are people out there doing very innovative things to be able to bring about tools methods, software, to be able to bring data to places that couldn't exist before. In my background, I worked in a high hazard environment. And so one of the challenges that I had there was, if I wanted to put a sensor on a machine, I had to run conduit, I had to pour seal offs and do all these things to get a single sensor. I might spend thousands of dollars to be able to get a single sensor installed on a single machine. But in today's world, we can put wireless sensors on things and stand them up literally in minutes to be able to accomplish that. And so I think while we are playing from a disadvantaged position in many cases because the lack of investment historically in the United States, we're seeing a renaissance where everything, because of reshoring and some other pressures that are being put on the supply chains, we're seeing a significant investment that's bringing back the ability to, to bring manufacturing back and do it in a way that's smart. What I tell people is, if you take a look at a lot of the equipment that's been built, particularly overseas in the markets that have really blossomed over the last few years of manufacturing, those were the folks that installed that equipment last. And you know what comes with that is you've got it all, all the sensors are on those machines, they have the ability to be smart right from day one. 
Here in the US, we're going to play catch up, but I believe we're going to do it the right way, which is everything that we build, we're going to start to put sensors on things as they come in the door. We're going to, we're going to start to um, put sensors in place where they didn't exist before, and we're going to start looking at new sensors that didn't exist to, to blanket everything. And so I think that's where, where we're going to see some evolution. Well, since you are out there in the field, I do want to get some insights from you around what it takes to transform digitally. What are the key elements required to successfully manage a digital journey? Yeah, I, and I think that's really important, and, and I hope your folks pay really close attention to this. And it's going to, it maybe backs into the question from a different perspective than maybe what you'll hear from a lot of other folks. The single most important thing that you need to have to be able to be successful is you've got to have sponsorship at the corporate level, the C-suites level. Somebody has to believe that this is the direction the company needs to go. As you know, smart manufacturing is very much strategic. So we have to be able to have a good core strategy to do that, and in order to do that, you have to have support at the top. Someone has to clear the roadblocks out for the folks underneath. The very next step below that then, Chris, is you have to find an evangelist within the organization. Someone or some group of people that you can empower to say, I understand that maybe this isn't what you do today, but we're going to upskill you to learn how to do these things and me as a C-suite guy, I'm going to empower you to be able to go do that work and, and allow that to happen. Once you have those two pieces of the organizational component, I've got the education, the motivation, and the support, now what we have to do is we have to be able to put pieces in place to set the core strategy. And this is where some folks go wrong. They don't take the time to either look internally or to study or to find someone else who actually knows what to do, engage them, bring them in, develop that core strategy so that you know that you're not going to have false starts and you're not going to have you know, missteps along the way and frustrate the organization. Once you lock in on a strategy, you'll be able to get there successfully. And that's part of what Axiom does. We help people with all the experience that we have to be able to help set that core strategy to know that you're doing the right things right from the start. So I heard three big things. You got to have sponsorship at the corporate level. Yep. You need to have an evangelist yep. and you need to have a core strategy. Yep. So on the flip side of this, what are the biggest hurdles or impediments to executing on this journey? It, part of it maybe ties back to what, what we talked about just a few minutes ago, if, is that if, if you're a company that's willing to listen to the loudest voice in the room, and oftentimes that's somebody who's a little bit more seasoned and, and maybe has some traditional experience, and success in a non-smart world, that can become an impediment. So you have to make sure that you get some equivalency in the voices that are in the room and a commitment to the cause. And once you've got that, that's going to be a great start to how you start to do that. And after that then, it's really about, as I said earlier, let's focus on that core strategy to the mission, and let's do it in bite-sized manageable pieces so that you focus on where is the highest elements of return early on in, in the process. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important. And I'm, I'm going to give you an example of a real-world example from myself. I started down the lean journey in the 1990s, you heard that, and um, I had to follow the lead of a sensei. Right, and we did a series of workshops, right? And I said, okay, I trust that you know where to go. And he did a value stream map and he walked through it. And we started doing workshops. And we got about maybe eight or 10 workshops into it. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if this is working the way we intended or not. But one day, one of the production guys comes up to me and said, Pat, you got to tell me what is going on. Like, business has just completely fallen off the, off the cliff. I don't understand what's going on. He's like, what's happening here? And he said that because his direct response was, there isn't a bunch of whips sitting everywhere. People aren't running around chaotically, right? Mm -hmm. 
I said, well, let me find out what's going on. So I went and talked to my friends over on the supply chain. They said, well, Pat, I, I don't know. We haven't really looked that closely. I mean, we know what the numbers are. And they charted it out. And sure enough, we were up 15%, but they felt a 75% reduction in the amount of work effort to be able to do it. That's the same type of, of transformational effect that you're looking for when you start to deploy these things. Let's do the high hitting things, let people see it and feel it, because then instead of having a single evangelist, you've now got a whole group of people that say, oh my God, this stuff really works. If you had one piece of advice for the audience before we leave, what would that be on how to successfully transform or a key pitfall to avoid? Yeah, so I'm going to give you an example. Um, when I worked at a large company and I had to do a large project, I could walk into a room and I would have 20 of my peers sitting around the table. I'd have people from IT, OT, cybersecurity, process engineering, project engineering, coders, everything, right? And they would all be best in class. These people were fantastic. And that's how we got projects done. When you start to take a look at the fact that 94% of the manufacturing operations are small to mid, yeah. they don't have 20, they don't have 10, they don't even have two. Oftentimes you're going into a room with an owner and a supervisor or manager that's saying, I need help, I'm drowning over here, but I don't take that first step because I don't know what to do, yeah. right? And so oftentimes they'll just continue to rely on their systems that become more and more outdated every day because if you're standing still, you're falling behind. And so my big hope is that your listeners out there that maybe fit into that mold say, you know what, maybe I don't have to know everything. Maybe I'll go find that guy that knows how to do that. Obviously Axiom's not the only one, but that's what we do. We help to come in from the very beginning, set the stage for how do you set that core strategy, how do you align to folks so that you don't have those false starts, you don't miss those gates, and you certainly don't continue to fall behind the competition. Don't wait, jump in, now is the time. Things are going to start to grow, there's a lot of things happening in the world, we're going to see some ups and downs. But I've been around long enough to know about the whipsaw effect. Every time things go down a little bit, there's this huge drive up at the back side of that, and, and that can be just as crushing as the downturn. So, to all your listeners out there, be ready, it's going to happen, I promise you. Things are going to get crazy out there in the manufacturing space with, with business, and let's be prepared to do that together. Okay, so we are three for three when it comes to definitions of smart manufacturing incorporating the importance of data in their answer. I like Patrick's emphasis, though, on listening to the data rather than the loudest, maybe most senior yet potentially old school person in the room. A good reminder since I think we've all probably fallen into that in some circumstance before. Also, we heard having executive sponsorship again, but with the addition of evangelists. Finally, and this is where we wrapped up, not everyone is going to have 20 people. Now, Patrick came from the Fortune 150 world working with PPG for a long time, so it's important to know that while he's seen this at that level, he's seeing how smaller organizations are transforming as well. By the way, if you want to see the full interviews, make sure you're following Sesme or head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23 to get to the show notes for this episode. One other thing I'll add here is that Patrick shared some of the tools he's most excited about that are enabling transformation. This includes edge-compliant devices, cloud, AI with digital imaging for sensing, which is a great segue to our next interview. Aldo Ferrante is the CIO of Sorba.ai, an AI and machine learning platform that helps manufacturers achieve their production and sustainability goals by auto machine learning solutions. In other words, no coding experience is required. You don't need a staff of data scientists. They are simplifying AI. 
You know the first question, so let's hear Aldo's answer. I try to think about smart ways to accomplish goals so we can all work hard and long. We need to work smarter. And with smart manufacturing, I think there's ways you can use a data-driven approach to improve your effectiveness or your efficiency. And that's really the bottom line is that how do you take those resources, apply them in a way that you could create smart operations that effectively give you better, better results. Your LinkedIn tagline is very loud, I'll say. It says, industrial AI will pave the way for the digital factory of the future. Correct. What do you mean by that? So, the, the digital maturity curve that uh, one of the marketing companies came up with, everything starts with data. So as you digitize your factory, what you now have is basically an infrastructure with a lot of data. So how do you then take that digital platform and turn it into a system where you can now show results? So paving the way, I mean taking AI machine learning is really the next step, not only for predicting, but for diagnosing, for helping to improve your system to optimize. Optimization and then autonomously, how do you make these algorithms more self-driving, if I can use that word. Yeah. So taking that digital platform, turning it into a, a platform that actually generates results. I'm curious, how does like your AI and ML platform at Sorba tie in with SESME and its overall mission then? Let's sure. weave it together. So the goal of SESME is to unify all of these different systems into a common digital platform where you can interact and interoperate with different systems in a digital way. Traditionally, every system has its own protocols, has its own way to interface. What SESME brings is a more unified approach to that. Yeah. And, and what we've done is we've integrated to that. So now taking that injection molding machine or CNC machine and be able to say, I want to be able to apply a machine learning algorithm to detect anomalies or failures, I don't have to worry about all that integration. All I do is point to that system, and our system then takes that model, cre automatically creates a machine learning algorithm, and generates a prediction for you. Eliminates all of the legwork. That's really where a lot of the work is. Yeah. Building machine learning model is one step, but integration, that pipeline, becomes even more complicated. Yeah. And it says me takes care of that through that unified platform. You're eliminating the work that would typically go in to creating that integration. So my last question then is, why is there an urgency to furthering the adoption of smart manufacturing right now? Well, I've been in this business a long time. Uh, in the automation side, I was a controls engineer when I started my career. So I've seen manufacturing grow in a big way. And with all of the you know, things happening around the world, we're sort of bringing manufacturing back. But we will never, as a country, be able to scale up manufacturing fast. We need smart manufacturing. We need smart ways to make us more effective. There's not enough people. Yep. There's not enough people that understand how to do this. So you have to build ways to use data to be more effective and to help scale. I'd love to hear your piece of advice to the audience then, because I feel like people look at AI 
in AI platforms as, oh, we need AI because that's the latest technology. Right. But they're not really discerning why they need AI. Yes. What's your coaching to the audience to approach artificial intelligence the right way? That's a great question. I usually do not try to talk tech. Yeah. I try to focus on what are their business objectives. What are the things that keep you up at night? You know, the saying, what keeps you up at night? If we focus on those objectives, then we can understand, is AI a mechanism to help you reach that goal? In some cases, it may not be maybe a simple fix, but it could be more complicated. For I'll give you an example of that. Today, most companies are trying to be carbon neutral. Yep. Sustainability is a big goal. In today's technology, there really is no other way to do that with AI. So AI can help reduce energy, reduce carbon emissions, and help customers achieve those goals. Manufacturing in the same line, trying to improve yield. So those are the things that I think are important to, to basically get us to the next step. Data, data, data. No surprise, this came up again. I also really liked Aldo's perspectives on when to look into AI as a business solution. Next up, we have two guests. We've got Eric Barnstead, Chief Architect for Standards, Consortia, and Industrial IoT at Microsoft, plus Michael Clark, Director at OPC Foundation. If you're not familiar with OPC UA, it's all about getting data out of a machine in a standardized format. That's Mike's organization. Eric is also focused on standards, as you heard. In other words, both of these gentlemen care about how information is exchanged between different platforms. We call that interoperability, and I think you're going to hear that in their definitions. Our first duo of the podcast, Mike. I'm a duo. Yes. <laughs> Eric, good to have you both here. So first question, everyone's, everyone's getting this question. And Eric, we'll start with you, and then Michael, I want your perceptions on this too, is... How do you define smart manufacturing personally? Then maybe more importantly, how do you define the smart manufacturing mindset? Oh, cool, that's a great question. So first of all, you know, smart manufacturing has been around for a while. So I think what's new now is that people start thinking in terms of uh, platforms, in terms of interoperability, mm -hmm. of different assets, different systems on the shop floor, also in the cloud, also interoperating maybe with some of the competitors solutions that are out there and how a customer can integrate those. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the mindset, it's really thinking differently about what's important to you. What value do you want to take out of a smart manufacturing platform? Is it around you know, squeezing that last 5% out of your efficiency? Or is it more around you know, thinking in terms of ecosystems and data models and also you know, really it's no longer about the protocol, but about the data model. The data models that you're using, the information models of your assets, no matter what they are, machines, systems, ERP systems, whatever they may be, and making sure that the data models are an open, open ecosystem data model. So smart manufacturing's been around for a while, but what I heard you say is there's a shift to focusing on platforms, data, interoperability. We'll get into all these further. Mike, I want to get your, your answer to this same question as well. What is smart manufacturing and how do you define the mindset? 
I'm happy to look at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Personally, I come from this from the uh, process automation realm. So I've got 33 years in process automation. My take on it is very similar to what Eric's pointed out, but the, the mantra that we've been going through for the last few decades is, is trying to avoid vendor lock-in. And smart manufacturing is just another way of saying, I'd like to embrace the open architectures that are out there. Um, from, from my personal viewpoint, we've done a lot to try to avoid vendor lock-in. Uh, by, by embracing open standards, by even participating, uh, my personal background is I, I've helped write part of the open process automation standard. Mm -hmm. So staying involved in that and being a, a contributor to that is, is just furthering that, that, that ideal. Yeah. All right, I appreciate the different perspectives on this. Next thing I want to ask is around the OPC Foundation to get some baseline here. It's Manufacturing Happy Hour. Mike, maybe you could take this one. When someone asks you what the OPC Foundation is, how do you describe it to them as if you're having a cocktail with someone? Let's say at the trade show, Happy Hour, for example. I've, I've had some fun with this, and, and more recently, one of the things that, uh, that, that popped into a conversation, and, and this, was, this was just some boys talking over the fence to each other, we were talking about how the OPC Foundation is the interoperability standard, and, and I, I got a blank stare from someone on that, and I said, well, have you ever played with Lego bricks? And they, they're like, well, of course. I said, so go back to the original Lego brick. You know, it was a very simple, very rudimentary kit. And then somebody came along and said, well, let's make it Lego Star Wars. Oh, no, let's make it Larry, uh, Harry Potter, or let's make it uh, Lego Farm. Yeah. OPC is Lego. All of these other pieces are the companion specs that help further the OPC technology. So you've got a, a spec for robotics and a spec for injection molding. You've got a spec for wind and solar, right? These are all adjuncts to the base specification. So I, I, I don't like to throw Lego under the bus, but it's, it's a good analogy. It's a way of saying, you know, OPC is the interoperability standard. Yeah. Everything else just plugs into it. Why are standards so important right now? If you don't have a standard, you're at the behest of whatever your programmer is going to create. I've worked in fields where you've got uh, a battery over here and a battery over here. This is upstream gas, for example, okay? And you've got, you've got a programmer here and a programmer here. And now you're gonna start to bring that stuff back to aggregate it at some sort of a, a enterprise server, okay? The way it was programmed here and the way it was programmed here, they may seem to be the same until you start to get into the guts of it. And then all of a sudden you realize they aren't the same. There are some nuances, there are some differences, and you're at the behest of each of these programmers and their flair for programming. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable to see what happens when you've got that collision of, of disparate data mm -hmm. and the work that has to now be done to do data cleansing if you wanted to do any analytics on that. Okay, so there's a lot more that can be said here, but I feel Mike's point is a strong stopping point to emphasize the importance of having access to data, clean data, if you want to run any analytics to make smart decisions. You know, I mentioned that I appreciated the different perspectives they provided, but as I thought about it more, their responses were pretty complimentary. Interoperability and avoiding vendor lock-in are both critical if you want to achieve the full potential of smart manufacturing. 
I'm glad we're able to get Eric and Mike on this episode. I mean, you could really do a full episode on data models and standards and their impact on smart manufacturing, but that's your taste for today. Our final interview is with Kathy Cahallan, founder and CEO of the manufacturing matchmaking platform Bennett AI. We're going to learn more about that in just a second, and this conversation will feature a bit more of a personal story. But for now, it's the last time we're asking this question for the day. What is your definition of smart manufacturing, and how would you define the smart manufacturing mindset? Good question. So for me, I bring it back to personal experience. I come from a family of manufacturers. My parents were frontline workers. I also was a frontline worker for many years, and we're talking decades in between. My parents' experience was that story that you hear about the old factories and dirty, and there wasn't a lot of automation, there wasn't a lot of technology being used. My experience going back when I was at Goodyear was we were a flagship facility, so we had the latest technology. So my experience was very different. So I look at the smart manufacturing as a continuation of that journey for other manufacturers. And the mindset is people being open and receptive to all the technologies that are coming, especially the new ones that are still being tested. There's a lot that's being done to try and facilitate and um, you know, make processes smoother and easier. And I think for us in the US, if we want to keep manufacturing strong here, we have to adopt that mindset to allow our growth and keep building what we built. So one thing I want to mix in more into these interviews that quite frankly I haven't done enough yet is some, some personal perspectives. And you mentioned you come from a manufacturing family. So the question I have for you is what drives you the most in manufacturing? What drives me the most right now is if I could help the old me that used to be on that factory floor. Mm -hmm. My son also worked on a factory floor and as I mentioned, my parents. And I have, um, I've been blessed the fact that I was able to go back to school after. I've learned an awful lot. I'm back in manufacturing. And if I can help other people and make their path a little easier, that's what drives me. Um, helping manufacturers solve their problems and having access to the resources that they need. I've got a great you know, ecosystem of experts that are surrounding me that I've met through people like yourself, my husband and other, and there is a collection of knowledge. And we just need to be able to get that into the hands of the manufacturers, especially the small to medium. That's what drives me is how do we help them where they are and let them know what's out there and available. So Let's talk a bit about what you're doing at Bennett AI as well to close things out. How is, what, and describe this for us a little bit, how is a matchmaking platform like Bennett AI, which as I understand it, matches manufacturers that have a problem with the subject matter experts that can solve it. Why is this such a critical part, maybe even an urgent part of the manufacturing, the smart manufacturing movement right now? Well, as I said, our, our focus a lot on the small to medium, and they need help. You know, we've come out of the pandemic, there's shortage of workers, we have the aging population and workforce that's transitioning out, and with them is a lot of the knowledge, but they're not necessarily ready to fully retire. So how do we take all that and still help the manufacturer? And we do that through a product like the Bennett's Manufacturing Exchange. And what we do is, 
opportunities are posted by manufacturer, whoever has a problem, and you know, our algorithms, our AI will match them to people that have put their skill sets into the database and we connect them. We want to be the neutral third party, so I want the best connection, the best match to happen. And that, for me, is what allows manufacturers, the small to medium, to get an edge on their competition and where they are and how they just move in advance forward. And you know, we talked a little bit earlier about all the buzzwords that are out there. Yeah. You know, we have Industry 4.0, we're slightly hearing Industry 5.0, um, smart manufacturing. What does that mean for them? They just need help. And we're trying to provide a tool that gives them access to experts that they would not be able to access themselves because they wouldn't either know that they could or who they are or how to find them. And we bridge that gap and we make it a much more simpler process. Well, I'm optimistic that in our series of interviews here, we have turned some of those buzzwords into things that people understand a little bit better, that they can take action on. But this was an incredibly helpful way to look at back on your experience and tie it in with where smart manufacturing has been and where it's going. So Kathy, I just want to thank you for jumping on the show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening and thank you to everyone that appeared on this episode. If you want to learn more, go to the show notes page, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23. You know, I'm about to share some of my biggest takeaways from these conversations, a little three-bullet summary, but before I do that, I want to say that if you liked what we discussed in this episode and you want to be a part of of conversations like this, you do have the opportunity to do that on June 4th through 6th, 2024 for next year's Smart Manufacturing Experience. There's a link over on the show notes page, and I hope you can join SME and SESME for the next round of this event. Again, the address for the show notes page is manufacturinghappyhour.com smartmfg23. All right, now time for the takeaways. My first takeaway, smart manufacturing is a mindset and digital transformation is a journey. It's the actions that drive change and it doesn't stop, it keeps going. It's not like, oh good, we're transformed. Remember, Mike Tomasco at Pfizer called this the forever endeavor. My second takeaway is that pretty much everyone shared the importance of data in their definition of smart manufacturing. If I were to summarize, it's looking at all the information and activities taking place within a manufacturing operation within the four walls of the factory and beyond and taking all that info to make decisions and take action. So part of the mindset is that transformation never stops. Data is a critical piece, maybe the most important piece of smart manufacturing. And my third and final takeaway is that there is a tremendous technical piece to making this all happen. We talked about standardization and data models in this episode, but what I will say is these are the areas where you can really lean on groups like SESME for direction and best practices. The third critical point I'll make, however, is the essential role people play in this entire process. Mike Tomasco talked about transformation needing to be driven by the top but embraced across the organization. He talked about the pains a transformation can cause for middle management. Sudi, at the beginning of our interviews, highlighted the importance of showing some quick wins early in a transformation. 
Why? Because if you want a transformation to succeed, and transformations are possible when you have that smart manufacturing mindset, you need people across the whole organization on your side in adopting that data-centric, action-oriented mindset. A mindset that's comfortable with change and a continuous evolution of your business and manufacturing operation. I'll make one more bonus point. Let's get real. There's no way to simplify all of what it takes to be successful with smart manufacturing into a single episode, but I do hope today's conversation gives you some ideas and best practices you can leverage in your own role. But also, that's why we have part two coming at you next week. So stay tuned, folks. Thank you, Sesame. Thank you, SME. Thank you, South Tech, for making this episode possible. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.